So this evening we're discussing from Bhagavad Gita, from the fifth chapter. I had given a series of lectures on chapters of the Bhagavad Gita in Vrindavan, and the discussions on chapter 5 and chapter 6 didn't come out very well in terms of the recording, so going over them again. And I got a request, we got a request from one of our subscribers who received chapter 7, concerned that he had missed chapters 5 and 6. So we'll begin the discussion on them tonight. Of course, chapters 5 and 6 are the concluding chapters of the first set of six chapters. And those six chapters are a description of all that is to be found or included within mature realization of bhakti, bhakti proper. And as Krishna speaks to Arjuna about what he wants him to do, beginning in the second chapter, he's describing to him his idea of the ideal person, the perfectly integrated being. And throughout his instructions covering chapters 2 through 6, here and there, Krishna indicates that it is bhakti that he wants Arjuna to embrace that the bhakta, his devotee, is that ideal, integrated person. But as I say, he wants to show him everything that's contained within bhakti in a gradual course also, through different types of yoga, karma yoga, jnana yoga, dhyana yoga. Particularly at the end of each of the chapters, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, he indicates bhakti. This is ideal for Arjuna, other places as well, but it's significant that at the end of each chapter he more or less wraps it up with some indication that bhakti is the ideal and keeps that idea churning throughout until the sixth chapter in which he comes right out and says it with full force. Yoginam apisarvesham madgitin antaratmanam shadhavan samya That bhakti is the highest ideal of yoga, the culmination of yoga. At the end of the second chapter, Arjuna asks a significant question. He asks about samadhi. Samadhi is mentioned earlier in the second chapter when Krishna says, Samadho navadhyate bhogaishvaya prasaktanam tayapritachetasam. The fixed state of mind that spiritual life is about doesn't awaken, doesn't occur as someone who's too many material desires, too much interested in the magic of material life, Bhogaishvarya, the magic of material enjoyment, Bhogaishvarya Prasaktanam Tayapritichitasa. So Samadho Navadhite, that Samadhi does not come in him. Then that same idea of Samadhi that was mentioned there is what Arjuna asks about in the concluding section of the second chapter, verse 54. Arjuna asks, tell me about how does he sit, how does he move about, how does he speak? That person, that ideal person that you're describing about, 
who's enlightened, who's in samadhi. And of course, then Krishna answers from verse 55 to verse 72. And 61 indicates it's that person who's in samadhi, that enlightened being, is actually my devotee. But it's a little bit suppressed. He's not coming out with the full picture of samadhi at this time. But over those verses in the concluding section of the second chapter, packed within that is the full idea of yoga samadhi and bhakti in devotion. And the enlightened being, the perfectly integrated person that Krishna wants Arjuna to become. And that then is unpacked over chapters 3, 4, and 5, and 6 in particular. So that's a very important section in the second chapter. In the third chapter, Krishna then speaks about karma yoga, about that action, which is actually yoga, which is a means, that is to say, of linking oneself to the Supreme, to God, a means which is that action that is uh, is a means to inner life. Before the inner life discussion, what is samadhi, what is that perfectly integrated being, that ideal person, before that discussion comes, of course, we know from the first chapter even, that Arjun is a very responsible person, person of personal integrity, a dutiful person. In fact, on the grounds of being dutiful and religious, he initially resists the whole war. Krishna is nudging him on, but on the basis of his religious and moral integrity, he's resisting. So this we should take note of also. Before we go on to even yoga, this is also part of being a devotee. It's mentioned in Purvavimamsa in the very beginning, Atato Dharma Jignashu. We've heard Atato Brahma Jignashu. This is from Uttarmimamsa, or the doctrine of Vedanta. And Purvavimamsa is the doctrine of karma, dissertation on religious life, and then a dissertation on spiritual life. So the Purvamimamsa begins, Atato Dharma Jignasu. Now is the time to inquire about Dharma, about righteousness. What is righteousness? To be religious, to be morally stout, to have personal integrity, responsible, dutiful. Do it because it's the right thing to do, regardless of what the apparent consequences might be. A sense that there's a deeper consequence from such dutiful action that has an inner reward. So Arjun had this sense. It is said, about Atato Brahma Jignashu. Now is the time to inquire about Brahman, about the self within, about God in an experiential sense, rather than in a religious sense. In a religious sense, then, we inquire about God to make our lives better, either in this life or in the next life. And in this way, we make some pact with God. We factor Him into the equation of our life with a sense that it will improve, and of course it will. But beyond that is an inquiry into what I have in common with God, and that is myself. I have a likeness to God. I'm of the nature of being and consciousness, not that which is here today and gone tomorrow, as is God. So it is said about that second inquiry into Vedanta, into the conclusion of the Vedas, by Ramanuja, for example, the great Acharya of Vishishtadvaita, Sri Vaishnavism, that this Ramajignashu, Inquiry into experiential spiritual life is prefaced by Dharma Jignashu, inquiry into the nature of religion. It means to say that having passed through religious inquiry and being a dutiful and responsible and religious person, having passed through all of that, then one has prepared himself for further inquiry, inquiry into the nature of the self. Of course, not all of the charges have 
agreed with that entirely. They don't entirely disagree with that, but, for example, Bhavadi Vidyabhushana, Prabhu, Bhagodiya Vedanta Charja, and even Shankaracharya himself from the Dvaita Vedanta school have said that it's possible to inquire into the nature of Brahman without having passed through religious life. If what? What does it say in Chaitanya Charitamrita? Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastrikoya, Lavamatta, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shidihai. If you get a moment's association of a real sadhu, this is the emphasis of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, of course. A moment, even fraction of a moment's association with the real sadhu can change the course of your life. You can become interested and qualified by that contact, by that association, to make such inquiries. So, we are all in, in that situation. Prabhupada came, for example, and made such an inquiry possible for us. But, we should know, coming via that route, that which others have passed through in terms of religious inquiry, we will have to pass through as well. We will do so through inquiry about Brahman and more about the full inquiry about Brahman, Rasa inquiry about, as Srila Siddhartha should say, Rasa Jignashu, the life of Brahman, inquire about that. So we shall do so in, in, in the context of doing so. In other words, in the context of culturing bhakti, we will pass through that lower stage. So we should look for that in ourselves. Rather than looking for our Siddhadeya spiritual body to manifest today or tomorrow, very soon, it is a very high thing. This is the high end of the ladder of spiritual life. We've written a commentary in Bhagavad Gita that touches on the highest reach spiritual culture. That is, of course, our Gaudiya tradition that uh, has brought that out. Raganuga bhakti and the Ragatmika bhakti of Brajabhasis and so forth, who Krishna's mind goes to here and there, tenth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, a little bit. You touched on that, and that may interest people to read such a explanation of Bhagavad Gita as Gaudiya charges have given. But they should be interested as well in the very beginning, the fact that Arjuna was a morally stout person, personal integrity and responsible, accepted responsibility for his actions. He thought, if I engage in the war, and I'm in this way instrumental in killing so many soldiers, warriors, what will become of their wives and their children, and then the whole preservation of the family. In this way, society will be in chaos. Oh, yeah, this sense. But we should see that that sense is coming within us. We should look for that. If we don't see that, then don't think that the Gopideha, Gopideha is soon coming. Of course, we know from ninth chapter, devotees can make mistakes, and Krishna tends to overlook them. But that is the generosity of bhakti. Overlooks them means we may get a chance to continue on, but those things will have to be cleared up. Our moral lapses and so forth. And really, in one sense, the, the moral lapse is a result of the lack of Krishna consciousness for a devotee, because the devotee doesn't see that Krishna is actually in everything in everyone and everything. When you go into the temple room, then you cast out thoughts, push them out of your mind, if they come into your mind of something that's uh, inappropriate, type of behavior or whatever it may be. Or if we sit and chant, we try to do that, probably even 
even easier to do when you come into the temple and the deity is there. The deity is a particular manifestation of the Lord Archavigraha. Nama Prabhu is, in a sense, a higher manifestation of the Lord, more generous, but not always such that we can fully take advantage. Therefore, we have in our Gaudiya Saraswat Sampradaya, the Mantra Diksha allows the devotees to engage in archan. You can sit and chant japa, you may fall asleep, but not too many devotees fall asleep doing the deity worship. The deity is, as Prabhupada used to say, a form of the Lord that you can handle. He's really there. You're not sure if he's there in the holy name because you haven't got a taste of Nam Prabhu, being a fender. <laughs> but still, by chanting even a little bit, we can qualify ourselves for associating with the form of the Lord. Form keeps away from us at first. Krishna and Krishna Nam, Krishna's form and Krishna Nam are one and the same. Form at the same time keeps a little distance from us. But Namapru is one with the form of the Lord, but different at the same time. How different? When the form keeps a distance, Namapru comes to us anyway. So very merciful. And coming to us qualifies us to approach the form of the Lord. And approaching the form of the Lord dutifully, respectfully, following the proper standards. We become further purified through Arjun, in which Kirtan is also involved. But through Arjun we become more qualified and we can take advantage more of Namprabhu, sit and chant and pay attention. We should look in the culture of our bhakti that things are coming within us that should be there. If there are moral lapses, they should be overcome. Why are they there? Because in our condition, we see the Lord in the temple. That means Kanishtadikari. He sees Krishna is in the temple. His conception of reality, the reality that is Krishna, has not expanded or is developed to include the devotees of Krishna. We serve the deity, and we think that we're doing very nicely serving the deity, and most of the time we're finding fault in the rest of the devotees who aren't doing as nicely. They're not working as hard. But this finding fault in the devotees and worshiping the deity, that's not a good policy. If we worship the deity nicely and avoid finding fault in the devotees, then in time we come to realize that the Lord is present in the devotees and serving his devotees is very pleasing to him. The Madhimanikari. He recognizes the Lord in the temple and the Lord in the devotees and he puts emphasis on the latter. And Uttamadikari sees the Lord in the temple, sees the Lord in the devotees, sees the Lord in everyone and everything. So when we see Krishna, the reality of Krishna that we're so interested in, that we think we're interested in, to be as inclusive as that is, then we'll no more fall into any moral lapse anywhere than we would as a Kanishtadikari in the temple. When we walk into the temple, walk into the temple and take our shoes off. But the Uttamadikari, we were walking everywhere with his shoes off, at least in his mind. <laughs> Gently, carefully, with honor. So, the cultivation of bhakti, the culture of the Krishna conception, Krishnanushilanam, that is certainly the solution to all of our problems, but we should look to see in the course of that culture that these basic good qualities, for example, of Arjuna are developing within us. 
dutiful sense of responsibility, and so forth. From there, then, the spiritual inquiry, the inward direction. And it, in Karma Yoga, it is not a directly, in a sense, an inward direction, but more direct than merely being dutiful and religious. It means to be active and with a view to enter within, to cleanse the heart of material clutter, material desires. When we engage in Karma Yoga, which is the subject of Chapter 3, then dispassion awakens over time. And along with dispassion comes eagerness for spiritual pursuit, determination, firm resolve for pursuing the self-realization, God-realization. Now, when Krishna instructs Arjuna about Karma Yoga, Nishkam Karma Yoga, in Chapter 3, then in Chapter 4, from speaking about Karma Yoga, Karma, he speaks about Jnana, knowledge. So again, uh, we are unfolding this part of, the concluding part of the second chapter, where Krishna is describing the ideal person upon Arjuna's inquiry about that man, Stita Pragya, who is in Samadhi. So he has that initial qualities of Arjuna. He has that fruit of Nishkam Karma Yoga, resolve, passions quieted, resolve. His action is informed by theoretical knowledge of a spiritual ideal, and he moves accordingly in pursuit of that. And the fruit of that of such action is, as I mentioned, this dispassion and this resolve, and the beginning, the budding of actual Dibhyagyan, transcendental knowledge, non-dual knowledge, knowledge of the nature of self. And we're going in a progression. This gyan is better than karma yoga. But the idea is that just like a child is within a womb, so this knowledge is within this karma yoga, and it comes out by appropriately applying oneself. It's the fruit because because it's the fruit of karma yoga. Therefore, it's it's better. But you can't just have the fruit without taking the trouble to grow the tree. So to do that work, karma. And with the detached spirit, as I say, informed with theoretical knowledge, without being attached to the fruits, even offering the fruits in the direction of God. This will bring the real fruit of the began. And then we come to chapter 5, under discussion this evening. And chapter 5 is um, introduced with the last two verses of chapter 4. And... Like in chapter 2, and like all these chapters, as I mentioned, there's some emphasis on bhakti at the end of the chapter. At the end of chapter 2, in those concluding verses that we are unpacking by discussing the later chapters, there's indication that Krishna wants Arjuna to become his devotee. In chapter 3, verses 30 to 35, before Arjuna asks the question about what it is that gets in the way, and Krishna answers the lust only, that all-devouring enemy of the soul. In verses 30 to 35, Krishna is emphasizing bhakti. And then in chapter 4, in the last two verses that introduce chapter 5, in final verse, verse 42, Krishna covertly implies this bhakti. Being my devotee is what I have in mind in terms of the ideal, integrated, enlightened person I want you to be, Arjuna. So he says in verse 41, 
a very curious term, yoga sannyas, the karmanam. He says yoga, karmanam, sannyas. He's speaking of karma sannyas. Sannyas means to give up. Speaking of giving up karma and engaging in yoga. So the idea is, Krishna is imploring Arjun that you should attain that state in which karma is given up, in which you're free from karma or free from the obligation to act because of being in want of purification and dispassion and the resolve for spiritual life. The proper execution of karma yoga brings about. You should attain that state. He further describes it, Atmavantam nakarmani nirbadnanti dananjaya and jnana sanchina sangshayam. So it says you should engage in karma yoga, nishkam karma yoga. It means, according to the fourth chapter, what does that mean? It's that activity that is disciplined by the kind of sacrifice that has been emphasized in chapter four. Sacrifice of the self. Sacrifice for higher knowledge. So he says you should engage in karma yoga to give up karma or to attain that state beyond karma. So there's actually a couple of ways to look at this. One thing is that there is action for purification, karma yoga, and then there is the renunciation of action. And of course, this renunciation of action is the subject of chapter 5. It's uh, karma sannyas yoga, giving up action. In chapter 3, Krishna was encouraged to act. And also in 4, here at the end, Krishna is emphasizing, do this karma yoga. And he says, in this way, you can come to the platform of not having to act, renouncing action. So as karma yoga brings us to a point of this passion and resolve and atmamantam, self-composure, then we can sit, for example, in contemplative life and directly cultivate transcendental knowledge. Through karma yoga, we indirectly cultivate it. We engage in duties and in responsible activities that um, we have a tendency and a propensity for, but we do it culturing detachment from the fruits of our work. So we're directly involved, really, with karma. We're integrating that karma with some theoretical knowledge, and this is bringing about some purification. But in actual contemplative life, when one is self-composed, then one can directly cultivate that self-knowledge. And, of course, that renounced state, so to speak, that is of the nature of real being, that will be explained in the fifth chapter, that sense that the movements of the body that were talked about in chapter 3, when Krishna said, this are all the gunas, that sense that I'm doing nothing and all the gunas are active is what's brought out in chapter 5 to some extent when Krishna is talking about that state, this kind of a state of renunciation. And this is really more of a state of renunciation than it is a external expression of renunciation in the form of sitting down and actually engaging in contemplative life. That does go on. But actually, Krishna doesn't recommend that for Arjuna. He recommends that he attain this state, and he recommends that he do so by continuous action in karma yoga, which, he says in the fifth chapter, is easier to do than to sit down and try to be a contemplative. The results that are sought after 
in contemplative life can be achieved also by karma yoga as it matures. So renunciation and action are not opposed in as much as they're directly and indirectly, respectively, about the culture of self-knowledge. One, the renunciation in a latter stage, and two, the Nishkarma Karma Yoga action in an earlier stage. This is the same thing that Krishna says in the sixth chapter. Of course, sixth chapter and fifth chapter, they go together for the most part, and they are, as I say, more directly explaining that section in the second chapter that is the concluding portion where Krishna speaks about the ideal person. What does it say in sixth chapter? Krishna says, oh, you asked this question the other day. What does it mean? He says, uh, Krishna says, for, for the practitioner, for the beginner in yoga, action is the way. And for one who has achieved yoga, renunciation of action is the way. It means one has to engage in action, detached action, for the sake of purification. But when that purification is arrived at, then actions that will get in the way of actually meditating, which is the subject of the sixth chapter, they should be given up. So the point is that action and renunciation, as prescribed by Krishna in chapter 3 and chapter 5, they're not opposites. But Arjuna, hearing Krishna talk at the end of the fourth chapter about action, yoga, which has been equated with action in the much as it's karma yoga, speaking about karma yoga and karma sannyas, giving up action, he becomes a little confused. It's a tricky subject. <laughs> so after saying what he said here in verse 41, that through the culture of karma yoga, you should come to the point of karma sannyas, doubts destroyed. Just previous to this, he's been talking about the doubtful person, self-composed, free from obligation to karma. You should come to this stage. And then he concludes the chapter about what? He says, Tasmada jnana samutam hrtstam jnana sinatmanaha. Therefore, you should fight. So in the previous verse, Krishna says, karma sannyas. This is the ideal. In the next verse, he says, so get up and fight. So Arjuna is scratching his head. You tell me to rise to the platform of giving up action, and then you tell me to get up and fight. So um, can you please elaborate a little bit? And that's, of course, how the fifth chapter begins having been led into by these two concluding verses of chapter 4. Now, this last verse of chapter 4 is, is interesting because, as I mentioned, each of these chapters more or less ends with some emphasis on bhakti. So here, in this verse, Krishna says, Tasmada jnana sambhutam, hritstam jnana Having jnana with the weapon of knowledge, the sword of knowledge, cut away the ignorance in your heart. Yogam otishtatishta bharata. You should take shelter of yoga and get up. And it means fight. That was the task at hand. And then, of course, it was Arjuna's duty. So in one sense, it's an advocacy of continuing with this Nishkam Karma Yoga, by which you will attain this karma sannyas, an inner sense of renunciation, an inactive position of the self in relation to all the movements moving furniture of the material world, ever-changing material phenomena, you will see yourself as being constant amidst all of that. 
So he's saying that you'll attain it by Nishkam Karma Yoga. There's really no contradiction here, but it is confusing. And Arjuna was a little confused, so he, he asks about it. But as I say, more than Nishkam Karma Yoga, Krishna is also emphasizing bhakti. How is that? He says, Tasmana Gyanasambhutam Hritsam Gyanasinatmana. What is Gyanasinatmana? He has just spoken previously in the other verse. This knowledge is the knowledge that destroys all doubts and frees one from obligation even for karma. Karma Nibandhi. And makes oneself composed and karma sannyas. So this is more than theoretical knowledge. If we take this as an advocacy of Nishkam Karma Yoga and follow the flow overtly, then this word gyan here has to refer to merely the resolve that I spoke about for self-realization or the theoretical knowledge that informs the activity of the karma yogin. But if we take it as actual knowledge, self-knowledge, then armed with this knowledge, get up and fight. So what is that activity then that follows knowledge that is bhakti? And that fighting means not fighting according to his dharma because it's his dharma to fight. And you should act according to your dharma, your prescribed duty with detachment to get purified, but because it's Krishna's battle. This is, of course, what happens at the end of the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna surrenders to Krishna, and then he fights. Not because it's his duty or any of these reasons that Krishna has brought him along with, but because he understood the conclusion. Be my devotee, just surrender to me. This is Sharnagati. Surrender. So Arjun surrenders, all consideration of Dharma, cast to the wind, this Krishna Dharma, Prema Dharma, takes shelter of Krishna. And then he goes ahead and fights. He does Krishna's work, Krishna Karma, Janma Karma, Jomedivyam, and Krishna has said in the fortune, this is a divine activity, my activities. So if that knowledge mentioned here, self-knowledge as the fruit of karma yoga, then we can, if we think of it like this, glean from this Krishna's advocacy of bhakti. Although overtly it appears to be an advocacy of nishkam karma yoga, which Krishna is taking Arjuna through, and in speaking about it, speaking about the results of it, and again, these results should all come within us, in our direct culture of bhakti, that we have adhikar for, eligibility for, capacity for, because we have had sadhu-sangha, association of a sadhu. So one thing is to come into this very qualified, having passed through all these stages. In the fifth chapter, again, the discussion of renunciation of karma is the topic. Krishna says there's really no difference between the contemplative life and the active life of yoga. The terms sankhya and yoga are used in different ways in these first six chapters. In the beginning, Sankhya and Yoga are mentioned in very early in the second chapter, in the 39th verse. Krishna says, I've told you about Sankhya. And there it means, I've given you theoretical knowledge about the nature of the soul. That's what Krishna first began to speak about. What did he say? Never was there a time when you or I existed, never would there be. He's talking about the nature of the soul, eternality of the soul. He took the argument of Arjuna's about Dharma and being religious, he just took it to another level. Repeat all your answer, your objections, by taking it to another level. You want to preserve the world and the family, you're not part of the world. You're a soul. 
What about that? <laughs> you don't die. Nobody dies. You can't kill. Nobody can kill you. So this was Sankhya, in the sense of being an analytical description of phenomenon that, uh, in a sense, comes to for this understanding of the nature of the self. And then he says, now I've told you about the Sankhya, now I want to tell you about yoga. And the yoga there means practice. So theoretical knowledge and then the practice that brings that knowledge to life. Here in the fifth chapter now, these same terms are used. Sankhya yoga, he says, but Krishna has used them in a slightly different way. Even earlier in the third chapter, Sankhya was used in terms of, more in terms of contemplative life. And that's what he's referring to here, contemplative life with renunciation that leads to dhyana, leads to real ability to meditate. And by yoga, he means yoga of action, karma yoga. So he says, actually, in the fifth chapter, he speaks about what these two have in common, this yoga and this life of the contemplative, the renunciate, renounced life. He says they have in common the same goal. So they're not really different. People who say that they're different and argue with this, they're childish, he says. But there is a difference, too. And the difference that he brings up is that there's a difference for you, Arjun, because when we take into consideration your eligibility, your adhikar, then we have to say, you should do karma yoga. And karma yoga is better. This is the difference. Karma yoga is better. Why? Better for you. Because you're a beginner. And you can't just sit down and enter into contemplative life. And for that matter, that inner state of renunciation that is what the contemplative life is really about, what does he say in the sixth chapter? Not he who lights no fire and performs no work. Just to sit down, give up the fire means don't perform the karma, all the yagyas and sacrifices and so forth. That... Um, this Vedic life is all about. Just to give up the fire means duties that are supposed to be performed and to do no work, that's not yoga. And that's not sannyas, he says. No. It's the inner spirit that is yoga. And that is sannyas also. The two are the same. It's the spirit of selflessness, sacrifice, and renunciation. So he says these two are really one. But there's a difference. Karma yoga is easier, and it's easier for you because this is your position at the moment. And for that matter, it's easier overall because if you're engaged in this way, the same result will come as those who sit for contemplative life. They have greater qualification they can sit. It may come more readily. Without some sense of it, they can't sit in the first place. But by practicing Nishkam karma yoga, it will come within you. And then he begins to speak about that state of renunciation, about the souls being more or less uh, suspended from action. And again, as as this chapter follows, that person, third chapter, the gunas alone are active. So uh, Krishna speaks like this to some extent, a number of verses, describing giving up attachment, the inner state of renunciation that the karma yogin should have, and then he also speaks about himself by way of comparison. He says, I'm not responsible. He says, God is not responsible for the agency of action. That means the means by which action is accomplished, nor the action. So he's saying this is God's position. It's like God is in a state of renunciation. 
And by that I mean independent of action. Karma sannyas, renounced from action. He's still, he's peaceful. Action means, of course, action of the world. We know in a higher sense he's active for lila. But lila and karma, they are not the same. They are very different. Karma means action that is performed because one has to perform it. And lila means that which is performed because he, he just wants to do it. So who can have the freedom to do whatever they want? That's what everybody wants. <laughs> we are teaching, Bhagavad Gita is teaching, how to do that, how to live that life, how you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. Whatever you want, whenever you want. This is what everybody wants, but who can do it? So many obligations are there, whether we recognize them or not. Beginning to recognize them is the beginning step to doing whatever you want, whenever you want. But we try to avoid so many duties and responsibilities in the name of being free to do what we want. We have to change our way of thinking. You see, when you start to see all the problems of life as seva, then you can understand how you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. It's awesome. It's when you see it as service to God. There are no problems. Just look at it in a different way. So Krishna says, I'm in a renounced state. I'm not responsible for those actions. Well, who is the responsible? The ignorance of the self's, the soul's identification with matter is perpetuating the whole thing, making the whole thing going around, go around. The soul, in its natural state, is not involved. But by force of identification with matter, the whole thing's going around. The karmic wheel is going around. So Krishna is explaining the karma yogi to Arjuna. This is his inner state in his advanced stages. Now he's moved from cultivating this passion and the resolve for self-realization to, even within the context of continued practice of karma yoga, actually cultivating that. So there's some, this whole first six chapters is really the psychology of the Bhagavad Gita, followed by the theology of the Bhagavad Gita in the middle six, followed by the metaphysics of the Bhagavad Gita in the final six. So this is the first six psychology, so a way of thinking, how to think about what you do. So he's talking directly here in the fifth chapter about this cultivation of the state almost of renunciation that is the natural state of the soul. As Krishna is saying, I'm aloof, so you are also aloof. And this way Krishna continues to speak about this this uh, idea of renunciation in the context of karma yoga and he comes to the end of the chapter and verse 27 and verse 28 he introduces chapter 6. He talks about yoga, mystic yoga, ashtanga yoga. What does he say? He says, all yoga terminology, expelling external context, fixing the eyesight between the eyebrows, equalizing the incoming and outgoing breaths that move through the nostrils, restraining the senses, mind and intelligence, and dedicating oneself to liberation. He from whom desire, fear, and anger have departed is forever liberated. The next chapter is about yoga, astanga yoga, hatha yoga, astanga yoga, and of course it's about bhakti yoga, as all these chapters are. And as the next verse in this chapter, the final verse of this chapter, verse 29, reveals that the fifth chapter is about as well. In this chapter, Krishna has three times used the word brahmanirvana. This is the word used at the end of the second chapter. Krishna said, you can attain that stage, brahmanirvanam. 
in verses uh, 24, 25, and 26 of chapter 5, in talking about this renounced state, inner state, he uses this term, Brahmanivanam. As I said, he's unpacking, to a large extent here in chapter 5, that description of the end of the second chapter that he gives of the ideal person in terms of his inner reality. It's going inward here, from outward in Karma Yoga, now to the inner culture, moving towards the direct culture of spiritual life. Interestingly, here at the end of the chapter, in the final verse, Krishna suddenly says, Bhuktaram Jagatapasam Sarvaloko Maheshvaram Surhidam Sarvabhutanam Knattamam Shantimrachiti So he's with these 27 and 28, in this verse 29, he's taking us into the next chapter, number one. And number two, he's saying suddenly that that state that he's been talking about, beginning in chapter two, and even using the same word here three times in chapter five, Brahmanirvanam. Nirvana means to blow out, so it means to extinguish the passions. It means to extinguish the suffering of material life that is fueled by our passion, our thirst, in the Buddhist language. It's obviously distinctly a Buddhist term, nirvana, although it does appear in some Upanishads and here in Bhagavad Gita. Here in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna has said, Brahmanirvanam. He says, you shall attain cessation of material existence, nirvanam, in Brahman. Sridhar termed the Buddhist conception of nirvana, prakriti nirvana, because there's no sense of Brahman. Prakriti means the material nature, so some type of merging with matter is the objective of the Buddhist. To become a stone. No suffering. End of all misery. But no Brahma. No, no, nothing positive. And, and Brahma, of course, is remotely positive. Just remotely positive. I've said before, the Buddhist idea is something like um, no room. And Shankar's idea of Brahman, or the, the basic idea of Brahman is, yes, there's a room. There's a place to enter. But there's nothing going on. There. There's no lights on. And Gaudiya turn lights on. What's going on in Brahman? What kind of activity? So Krishna has explained this actually in Bhagavad Gita in chapters 5 and 6, because in chapter 5 he's used the term Brahman Nirvanam again and again, unfolding with the meaning of that, the significance of that, which was first mentioned in chapter 2. And here at the end of the chapter he thrusts himself into the equation of enlightened life, suddenly. He says, Bhogdaram Jagatapasam Sarvaloka Maheshvaram. Bhogdaram Jagatapasam. For the yagya means karma, and tapasa, gyan, Bhogdaram Jagatapasam Sarvaloka Maheshvaram. And for yoga, Sarvaloka Maheshvaram means paramatma, the oversoul of the world. Yagya means karma yoga, tapasa means gyan. Gyan means objective is Brahman, yogi's objective, paramatma. This is the subject of the next chapter. Krishna is saying, I'm that Paramatma. He doesn't say it directly, but he says, Sarvaloka Maheshvaram. We know that it's Paramatma, and in the sixth chapter he says it, Paramatma Samahita. He identifies himself with the object of meditation for the yogi. It's not arbitrary what we should meditate upon. Krishna has explained himself to be that object in Bhagavad Gita. And Suridam Sarvabhutanam, the friend of everyone, this is Bhagwan. Krishna says in this last verse, I'm the enjoyer of all sacrifice. And it also means, I am the goal of yoga. I am the enjoyer of all tapasa, all austerities. Austerity means knowledge. It also means, I am the goal of the jnanis, Brahman. And I am suhidam sarabhutanam. I am Bhagavan. All enjoyment is for me. I am the enjoyer of both sides. 
you can look at it like that, of karma and of gyan, of licensed acquisition or acquisition in a way that brings detachment even. And I'm also the of detachment, of knowledge, that knowledge, its culture, its awakening, destroys the impetus for action, both sides. If you want to enjoy, you want to renounce, Krishna is saying, better to serve me and the fruits of these things are in me. Sounds a little bit uh, foreboding. He says, I'm the enjoyer of everything. I'm the controller of everything. So we think nothing for me to enjoy, nothing for me to control. I can't have my own land, even <laughs> my own place, hang my hat. Everything belongs to him. But he says, accept it and suridam sarvabhutanam. I become your friend. So he who is the owner and enjoyer of everything you're on friendly terms with. What is your position then? It suddenly rises to the top. And he says, not vamam shantim rijati. This shantim nirvanam idea is quickly rijati attained by understanding this. After this whole discussion, he suddenly says in the end, know me to be the enjoyer of all sacrifices, the controller of everything, the enjoyer of all fruits of all culture of knowledge, tapasa, the friend of everyone, and quickly it will attain whatever it is I've been talking about. So he's saying, as I say, he's thrust himself into the equation of what enlightened life is. Knowing him means knowing the cessation of material existence, nirvan. It means knowing Brahman and everything that Brahman could possibly be, the full sense of Brahman. So he's stressed bhakti at the end of the chapter and introduced through this last verse also the object of yoga, the paramatma, yoga meditation, I should say dhyan, the next chapter is called Dhyana Yoga, Yoga of Meditation. It follows naturally because now comes the actual practice. Sixth chapter emphasizes practice. Sixth chapter emphasizes practice, sadhana, the physical and the psychic expression of yoga. So there's discussion of Hatha Yoga and Astanga Yoga, the object of the yogi's meditation, Paramatma, and also there's discussion of Bhakti. So Krishna at the end of the fifth chapter has talked about Bhagavan. He's identified himself with Bhagavan. Surhidam Sarvabhutanam. As Krishna speaks about Ashtanga Yoga and emphasizes practice so important to us in any stage of yoga, so important to us in Bhakti, the sadhana, the practice. This is the one sense, the Kripa. We ask for Kripa. <laughs> mercy. What does Vishwanath Chakri Thakur say when he says, by getting the mercy of the spiritual master, one gets the mercy of Krishna. Says, I just want to please the spiritual master and have his mercy by always following these practices, hearing, chanting, and so forth. The, the line between mercy and these practices is a fine one. You get mercy, then you can practice. Practice, you can get mercy. <laughs> so, emphasis on practice, very practical, the sixth chapter. And in the course of emphasizing that practice, of course, he comes directly to bhakti. In verses, what, 29, 30, 31, 32, he speaks about the highest ideal of bhakti, the highest vision of the bhakta. He sees me everywhere and everything. I'm never lost to him. He's never lost to me. We have the best example of gopis in Vrindavan, seeing him everywhere and everything. They're never lost to him, and he, he never absent from them, hiding behind the tree only. It has to come out, force of their devotion. So some nice verses there. I'm kind of going a little quickly through it, but three, four verses about the highest ideal of bhakti and then Arjun's inquiry. What if I... This sounds great. I should... Well, first he says, it's, it sounds hard. <laughs> he says, it sounds hard to practice yoga, control the mind. Krishna, of course, agrees. I know, but you can do it. You practice. 
with detachment. What if I'm unsuccessful? Will I gain anything in the spiritual realm? Will I gain anything in the material realm? It's already been answered. Krishna said, Neha Bikramanashosti Patibana Vidyate Matobayat. In this yoga, there's never any loss. So he elaborates upon that. Now there's no loss in this practice of yoga, in this kind of sanatana dharma. And by the way, he says, therefore you should always be a yogi and of all kinds of yoga, bhakti yoga. That is the best. And Arjun is stunned at the end of the sixth chapter to realize that perfectly integrated, enlightened being that Krishna wants me to be is a devotee. And he's stunned by all that it involves. And we should be stunned as well by all that it involves and think ourselves very fortunate to be able to engage by the grace of real sadhu, even in a beginning way, in bhakti. And we should do it in such a way to look and see that all these things are coming within us. And these things are all just the beginning of bhakti, of the life of bhakti. Qualifying one for bhakti proper, Brahmabhuta Prasanatma, Nasochitnakangshiti, Samasavishabhutrishu, Madbhakti Mabhate Param. So with that we'll close. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai, Sisi Krishna Arjun ki jai, Gaur Nityananda ki jai, Gurya Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai, Shilaisi Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupada ki jai, Bhakti Rasik Shiradi Goswami Maharaj ki jai, Bhakti Sitam Sastri Thakur Prabhupada ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai, Gaur Brahmanandi.